Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this podcast of The Daily Journal, in which we will be talking about one of the most knowledgeable people in the United States, retired U.S. District Judge Philip Rowe, on the current challenges facing the judicial system and dispute resolution. If you would like MCLE credit, for this hour, it is easy to get. The podcast, and you may be listening to it on that, is outside the Daily Journal paywall. And if you simply go to dailyjournal.com and look for the MCLA section, you will see that there's an MCLA test that you can take electronically, send into the Daily Journal, and you may receive one hour credit for listening to this podcast. So we welcome you to our discussion. And our guest today, a very distinguished guest, is Judge Philip Pro. He's retired now from the U.S. District Court, but he served first after a long and distinguished career as a litigator, first for as a magistrate in the U.S. District Court in Nevada for a period of about seven or eight years, and then for over a quarter century, 27, 28 years. He was a judge on the United States District Court in the District of Nevada, and for five of those years was chief judge of the District Court. He is now and has been for a couple of years an arbitrator at JAMS, but brings all of his previous experience in resolving disputes on the bench as an administrator of a court and now in private dispute resolution to deal with with the issues that we are dealing with today, which were very serious even before the COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, which have become more serious since then, and which for other events have become even more serious after that. Judge Pro, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it. Well, Howard, thank you very much for that overly kind introduction, uh, but I certainly look forward to speaking with you today and to anyone in the audience uh, that uh, happens to listen in. We want to, I think it's really remarkable, we want to talk to you because of this remarkable moment in the judicial and the entire legal system. Uh, we had huge court calendaring issues budgetary issues, the, the range of issues, even before COVID-19. And now, because of COVID, so many of the courts, the trial, state trial courts especially, but it's impacted federal courts as well, have really impacted assumptions that we've made about how a, a judicial and dispute resolution system should function. How, how do you view what is happening now it, it, in terms of looking over your, over your background, what you did on the court, the kind of things you dealt with, how do you view the current problems that we're, that, that, that we're now faced with? Well, well, I think your preface really is, is completely accurate. The courts, certainly in my experience, and I can speak more uh, completely as for the United States District Courts, but certainly of my colleagues in the state bench as well that I know, have, have suffered for many years under limited budgets, inadequate budgets and staffing to allow them to discharge the kind of responsibilities that we have as a public court system in dispute resolution. I mean, people need to have access to the courts. They need to have access to the alternative dispute resolution mechanisms that we have as well. And as you said, the prior to the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, constant challenges encountered by the courts in keeping pace with a burgeoning caseload. It's just been exacerbated tremendously in the last three months with the coronavirus pandemic that that we've encountered. And it's 
it's put us in a position, uh, certainly in the ADR field, uh, where I currently work arbitrating with jams, for example, and that's just one example of trying to adapt, of, of being flexible and adapting to try and provide vehicles that will help us deliver that dispute resolution process. One of the things that I want to ask, because I think people uh, in some sense know about it and another don't, but I've spoken to, to so many United States District Court judges, often after they retire, about the workload while they were on the bench. One retired United States District Court judge told me that in all the years she was on the court, she didn't take a single day off, not a Sunday, not a holiday, that the pressure was so great that if you were you know, treated it the way judges do, you just had this enormous uh, workload. How do, how do you cope with, I know in, in, the, in many district courts, each judge carries 500 civil cases plus immigration plus criminal. Talk to us, having done this all those years, how do you cope with that kind of workload uh, in terms of dealing with the issues in front of you? Yeah, that's uh, your colleague or the, the, the friend of yours that described her her routine is, is fairly accurate in my experience. The court, I know there's a popular culture and image that, uh, you know, federal judges are able to go off and do different uh, things and, and vacations and, and such. Vacations were a rarity for my experience yeah. with our court. The, the District of Nevada, where I sat, was an extremely, and still is, an extremely busy district. Uh, and we've, we've constantly found ourselves working long hours, multiple cases in a single time to try and keep pace. So we're always playing catch up. Our courts are reactive. You know, we don't initiate any lawsuits. We, but we have to respond to whatever comes across the docket. And through the system of random assignment, you never know what's going to land in your lap any given day beyond what you already have calendared. And the best thing you can do is to try and be as efficient as you can. This is an area where over time technology and developments in technology have helped us in, in this regard. When I, when I started in 1980 as a new magistrate judge, uh, about seven weeks after I commenced my work on the court, there was a terrible fire at a hotel in Las Vegas, the MGM Grand Hotel. Eighty-six people perished in that uh, fire. It, it generated what was at the time the largest MDL case in the uh, multi-district litigation case in the United States. And over the course of three years, I ended up conducting about 135 weekly discovery hearings to try to cope with the pace of discovery, working with a district judge, Louis Bechtel from Philadelphia, in trying to resolve that litigation. Ultimately, we did. We, it was all settled, but it was an enormous uh, burden to do. And that was without the benefit of the kind of technology that since 1980 has, has come on board. And slowly but surely, the courts have adopted and adapted to these technological developments. What I want to ask you, from the standpoint of our listeners and practitioners, because I, until a couple of years ago, was regularly appearing in, in district courts as well as counsel, 
And the issue always was with knowledge of the calendaring pressures, and I think there are two separate things here. One, the individual case, the MDLs, which have become a huge part of the federal course, court's uh, workload have become a whole different issue of advocacy. But in individual cases, counsel appear in front of the front of the courts. Everyone has to be sensitive to the calendaring pressures and the impact on how cases are handled. In terms of advocacy and achieving success in the courtroom, just as a diversion, but I think an important one for us to talk about is, what advice would you give a lawyer who's coming before you when you were on the bench in the courtroom? What should the lawyer have done, given the calendaring pressures, to make the greatest impact uh, in representing the client? Well, I think a few things come immediately to mind, and in my experience, served counsel well in in my court, certainly. The first almost goes back to English 101 in school. You know, clarity and brevity are virtues. In the matters that are filed with the court, try and be as concise, as clear as you can be. And don't simply, as someone said, don't, don't simply describe where it hurts, like notice pleading. You can do that, but tell me exactly what you want me to do about it and why and offer a solution or two for me to consider. Uh, when it comes to argument, get to the point, uh, concede the issues that uh, don't order in your favor, and, and be as interactive with the judge. Hopefully the judges, and I certainly in my experience, or my colleagues on the federal bench are prepared and have read the papers, but when we receive matters that are, you know, banker boxes high, it's going to retard our ability to uh, decide those cases quickly. The other- yeah, it's such an important point because, you know, we've always been involved in cases where there are page limits, and for some reason lawyers feel they want to ask for more pages, when in fact the message that is you hear from every judge and all counsel who are great advocates will tell you is that the key is to do it in as short a, a, a method as possible, that you know the ten-page ten brief that is concise, right on point, and makes the argument succinctly and hits it hard, or even the five-page brief is better than the forty-page brief because the forty-page brief, and I don't want to have anyone misunderstand, though it may be read, it's not going to have the same punch as five pages. I just a personal note, I was involved in a very sensitive matter and I wrote what people in the court and then the account told me was the, the most effective not that it, I don't mean to it's just an interesting comment. One of the most effective briefs they'd ever seen. It was a page and a half long. Because there was one critical issue and that's all it talked about. And there was one key case and that's what it cited. But it's so difficult. I mean, that's not bad advice, is it? It's so difficult to get lawyers to not want to have more pages and, and submit more items. No, and, and I think it's good advice. And I think that counsel appreciate the, the judges doing much the same thing. I, I learned very early when I started as a magistrate judge struggling with some complex discovery disputes that... You know, the imperfect decision I make now is better than the perfect decision I never make. Uh, counsel want to prevail, but they also want to know. They, they want an answer. They will adapt. They will work with what the result is going to be and, and try and be similarly concise in your ruling, explain what you're doing and why. 
but get to it, cut to the chase, and uh, and move on, frankly. Well, let's talk about, again, for a moment, because I think it's important, because so much of the of the caseload of the federal courts has now become multi-district litigation. I mean, you you managed one of the one of the largest ones uh, when it was was not the kind of uh, ordinary procedure that it is today in the MGM fire litigation, but a huge percentage of the overall federal caseload now involves MDLs. And are there special things that lawyers should do as part of those MDLs that are different than individual case representation? Well, I think to try, really this would apply to any case, but certainly when we're talking about complex litigation, complex commercial litigation, intellectual property litigation, uh, MDL type of litigation, the innovative counsel, the counsel that come in with proposals, not just, you know, tell you what they would like to see happen, but maybe consult with opposing counsel and come in with some proposals as to techniques, things that can be done. I think this has been evident in the growth of the MDL litigation over the years. Again, when I had that experience with the MGM fire litigation, we didn't have computers. We didn't have electronic case filing. But we had to to adapt very quickly in the discovery hearings I did to the use of uh, telephonic hearings at these weekly hearings that I had to be available on a moment's notice to intercede to deal with issues that may come up in a deposition any place in the world uh, because there, there were litigants from all over the world in that case. And, you know, the, the, the fact that counsel were able to propose techniques, why don't we try this, propose different approaches was particularly useful. But especially useful, especially useful. And that's what I I really want to to maybe talk a bit, a bit more about is the use of that technology currently changes. But while you were on the court, not just in the MDL, but generally, uh, you wound up using technology that has since become more widely used. For example, online witness appearances, in, in the court, in the, in the court proceedings, how did you use it? I think since whether we, use, we talk about Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams or, uh, or other, uh, kind of technology that permits that, generally Zoom is being widely used now, so we can refer to it that way. But you had a, there was a fair amount of experience. This is nothing new. We're talking now about, widespread use of Zoom and mediation and arbitrations, but but having witnesses testify from a distance, hearing arguments from a distance, using online video technology is not anything that's new in your experience, is it? It's really not. Uh, right now, we're experiencing a, a huge increase in the use of these virtual communications platforms to utilize them in mediations and arbitrations in ADR, and our courts are using them as well in both criminal and civil proceedings. But they're not writing, none of us is writing on a clean slate here since, I suppose, the invention of the telephone. People have adapted to using new technology. There's a cultural lag that flows from that, uh, like having automobiles and no roads to drive them on or something when they're invented. And I've read that lawyers early on were reluctant to talk on the phone. They didn't feel it was professional. I don't know if that's true. It may be 
apocryphal. I do know that the use of email once that developed was something that many lawyers were disinclined to use for a long time, particularly in smaller uh, communities, adapting to computer technology in our courts. When I started in 1980, we didn't have computers at all in the courtrooms. We certainly didn't have an electronic case filing system, the ECF type of system that we have now or the analogs that exist in our state courts. Uh, These were things that just we weren't familiar with. We learned necessity is the mother of invention, and you take baby steps as you move forward. Council started offering more frequently video depositions, for example. And I had several cases in in my years as a district judge, particularly, where we would have testimony in civil and criminal trials from witnesses in remote locations that would testify via some form of video link. This was pre-Zoom technology, but something that was available to us to allow us to, uh, to receive that testimony. I conducted uh, one trial. A couple come immediately to mind, if you'd like me to mention them. Uh, one involved a plaintiff in a civil case who had been rendered quadriplegic by a fall on a bus visiting Hoover Dam in Las Vegas. And he was from Germany, and he couldn't travel back to the United States. And he participated in the entire civil trial from his home in Germany. One of his doctors also testified remotely. But later I did a, in 2003, I think it was, I did a major half billion dollar Bank of China fraud case involving two former uh, bank managers of the Kaiping branch of the Bank of China. And the chief cooperating witness was a former co-conspirator of theirs who was in prison in Beijing. And he testified from prison for two days at kind of odd hours with a jury uh, and uh, resulted in ultimately the, the conviction of these individuals. But but really, my, my point was we can we can adapt. And it just required, first of all, hopefully a stipulation of the parties or at least a very good record made if it's not fully stipulated to. But it's been used for years. It's been used in arbitrations. I've conducted arbitrations pre-pandemic. In which both witnesses appeared, often expert witnesses from remote locations via video. I even conducted an entire arbitration, one day arbitration, where everyone appeared remotely. So it, this is not entirely new, and uh, it, it's new to some people, and it's new, I think, to some council who may not have experienced it in the past, and right now more and more are having to confront it. But let me ask you about, you mentioned sometimes with stipulation of counsel. Let's talk about the court experience first before the ADR experience. But in the court experience, did you order uh, the permission for distant appearances, uh, as we're talking about online, even if parties objected to that? Well, it would depend on the reasons. This is why I say you want to make a good record for your court of appeals if you're going to do something like that as a as a trial judge, certainly. Typically, the way these would be presented, it would be on motion of counsel or a stipulation tendered uh, to me. Uh, 
in the case of the Bank of China case, it, it involved the State Department as well as the Department of Justice as well as Defense Counsel agreeing to it. And But uh, I would, if I felt that the objection to proceeding, you know, allowing this doctor to testify from Oklahoma or something online, uh, was was not grounded in, in a solid basis, then I would exercise my discretion and allow it. I don't recall ever being reversed in doing something like that. And I'm not sure with regard to arbitration. I know there's different law on the subject in different jurisdictions as to the authority of an arbitrator, which is certainly not the same as a uh, judge, uh, to to compel uh, allowing such remote attendance. But I I think as long as you made a very fine, you certainly want a stipulation, would prefer the agreement of everybody. But if you had to, I think you could probably, if you have a sufficient record, it would be sustained by whatever reviewing court. But for our purposes, for the discussion that's going on at the bar and in dispute resolution circles today, uh, I think it's significant that courts uh, have had the power uh, to order the distant appearances, the, you know, the video distant appearances uh, by witnesses, even in, in criminal cases, uh, and uh, that that power existed. Oh, we, oh, everyone always prefers stipulation. But the important thing for how we go forward is that that is a power that the courts had. Uh, there had to be a record. There had to be a basis for it. Uh, but the, in terms of the existence of authority to do so, there was not a question about the existence of the authority uh, of the court uh, to compel uh, what we can call the appearances from a distance, even over objection, if, if, if a sufficient record were made for the need to do so. Uh, Absolutely. It's the responsibility of the court to, to administer, manage, and, and proceed with the case. You want to do it as fairly as you possibly can. Obviously, uh, very mindful of the due process rights of everyone involved. But uh, candidly, if, if the objections are simply, uh, uh, you, in your view, as the judge frivolous and, and uh, you can make a reasoned ruling to that effect, then I think you can. You have an inherent authority to proceed. Now, talking about, because people talk about, you have a jury trial, you have a witness appearing uh, on behalf of one party from distance, and then there's cross-examination. Uh, when that occurred, do you think that the cross-examiner was harmed by the fact that the witness was in a distant location and appearing on a, on a screen in a courtroom instead of being present in the courtroom? You know, I, I don't. I'm sure many many counsel who are conducting the cross-examination would violently disagree, perhaps. Uh, but but my experience with cross-examination has always been that the, the effective cross-examination is something that, that works whether the person is 10 feet away from you or 20 feet away from you or 2,000 miles away from you, as long as you've got clear sight back and forth. One of the virtues actually of the remote testimony I, I think that people are realizing more and more is that you have a full face view of the individual that's being examined and you don't really have that in a courtroom setting or even always in an arbitration setting where people are arrayed around a table or in a large courtroom and jurors off to the side if they're looking at a large monitor where they can really see the person uh, 
I, I think that works well. Obviously, you want to have certain protocols to make sure that there's not other people in the room uh, or co- coaching a witness or something of, of that sort. But uh, I think that it uh, can be just as effective. A good cross-examiner can handle either situation, experienced trial counsel. I don't mean to suggest, though, in saying that, that I think for a minute that it's preferable to do everything remotely or entirely uh, remote proceedings. I mean, these are these are creatures of necessity, you know, born by the needs of the particular case, the circumstances that you're presented and you have to adapt. But I do want to focus, right? if I can, I want to focus on the specific point that you mentioned, which I think is really important to think about. I mean, as as a judge, you often, in non-jury trials, uh, for example, if in factual disputes had to, as fact finders need to do, evaluate the credibility of witnesses. And so the question is that people ask, can you measure credibility? Can you make the determination of credibility as well from the, the, the screen as the witness in the courtroom? And I've heard two views on this. One is, of course, you need to be present because of body language. But the other view that I've heard is, you know, that seeing the full face on the screen may actually give you at least as good and perhaps even better a measure of credibility as looking at the witness from an angle where you see the back of the head and the the body. And I mean, what are your views on on the credibility issue? Do you, did you think there was any difficulty in measuring credibility uh, by having a, I can't, yeah, I can't say there was never a difficulty, but in my experience, when I'm assessing credibility as a trial judge or as an arbitrator, naturally I'm focused on, the manner of the witness and the, their, how they respond to the questions and body language and and everything else. But the full face view is also very important in that regard. But but in truth, my experience is most credibility determinations are not simply predicated upon whether you listen to witness one and witness two and you thought witness one was just more credible than the other. Sometimes that is the case. But it's that determination is really informed by other evidence in the case. Rarely am I dealing with a case where it's just one person saying one thing and another person saying another. Typically, there are documents, there are photographs, there are other witnesses who are going to testify, and it it comes together as as a whole. It's not a determination made in, in isolation, just looking at the person saying, oh, I think that guy is telling the truth, or I don't think that person is telling the truth. Yeah, let's switch to, because it becomes an interesting issue in, in arbitrations now, uh, because uh, they're, you know, we're on the verge, perhaps, of permitting in-person arbitrations, when I say permitting, under governmental shelter in place and other, other orders, right. having uh, in, in-person arbitrations, but with social distancing rules and uh, face masks. And so a, a discussion I know that has occurred among a great many people, arbitrators, counsel, clients, is whether in fact you have a better judgment of credibility and the evidence, the, the oral testimony, uh, watching someone uh, from a distance on a screen not wearing a face mask, rather than being in person, but having everyone following current guidelines, uh, not only social distancing, but wearing face masks. And that adds an additional element to how this decision uh, uh, should be made. 
Well, I think I think wearing face masks could certainly be an inhibiting feature in terms of <laughs> assessing credibility or identifying yes. people. I, I know, for example, in our courts, at least in Nevada, in our U.S. District Court, and I've talked to colleagues uh, there recently, that uh, in-court proceedings where uh, the the parties are testifying, they can remove the masks. And but there are there are hurdles in terms of the social distancing and the other protocols, the PPE protocols, that really must be observed to protect everyone involved, the, the employees, court employees, or staff at jams, at an ADR provider, for example, or the uh, lawyers involved and their staffs and, and so forth. Uh, I can give you a, just an immediate example, one of which occurred yesterday and the other last week. Uh, I have two arbitrations currently scheduled this month, uh, later this month, one next week, and uh, the, the parties were all from locations outside Las Vegas. Their witnesses also, and the, par- and the clients were from outside Las Vegas. And they've agreed in both of those cases to proceed via a, a virtual a format, virtual communications platform entirely. For much the same reason, some are in locales where travel is a problem, uh, where their shut their closed shutdown requirements by their governors and their states say different things. Not all offices that provide ADR services like Jams are opening at the same time. Uh, we are open as of yesterday in Las Vegas, but uh, in in Los Angeles, the old central district, at least downtown Los Angeles, I don't think has yet. And there are other locales that are and some that are not. So I, I think that we're going to find out very quickly what the assessment is on that score. But I'm not, I'm not overly concerned about that. I think that uh, good, good lawyers conducting sound examination of witnesses on direct and cross-examination, the, the, the truth tends to to out, at least as it's subjectively assessed by that yeah. judge or that arbitrator or that jury. And we don't know where the technology is going. I mean, as you mentioned, the what happens in the history of technology. But one of the things that happens, you know, is that the immediate thought of what is happening gets changed by its usage. You know, when, when the internal, but when the uh, internal combustion engine or the steam engine the first was used in what we now call automobiles, uh, they were referred to as horseless carriages. And in fact, when built, they were built like a carriage that would be pulled by a horse with the driver sitting up on the front seat uh, and the, the engine providing the energy underneath because after all, it was, that was the model. It was a horseless carriage. Later, of course, people understood very quickly uh, that automobiles are not that. They're something quite different. They change consistently. And, you know, I think what may happen with the increased use of technology is increased use of, of online witnesses and, and uh, using the example of Zoom for arbitrations is that at first we think of them as normal proceedings that are simply using the technology to be done as they always have been done. But they will change. People will, I think, come to realize, and, and are just starting to think about it, that doing a dispute resolution process uh, online, not physically in the same location, provides opportunities to do things that you could not do when everyone had to come together to the same location, both in terms of scheduling, 
in terms of viewing, in terms of discussion, in terms of what happens, and that we are likely to find, and we can't even fully predict yet, the kind of new system that will develop and really require a different set of skills. You know, some people uh, who are doing, lawyers who are doing this, are starting to consult television directors uh, and movie directors on the issues of lighting and voice control and preparation of video exhibits. Uh, Because once you're doing everything on video, uh, suddenly you don't just sit in front of something without being concerned about the background or your makeup uh, and uh, or how you look or what you wear or how you use your voice or how you deal with exhibits. And so they're actually counselor now consulting people in the entertainment industry who have had to deal with these issues in preparing uh, video presentations in television shows or in movies dealing with these same issues of what is an effective communication when you're communicating in what amounts to a television set as opposed to in person. And that understanding is just beginning. It is just beginning. And people are just starting to have those consultations. And so we are likely to see five or ten years from now very different set of protocols in terms of what counsel are trying to do with persuasion uh, in the ADR proceedings uh, because of, of what may be available. And that will be one of the interesting things to watch, I think, uh, over the over the coming years. Uh, well, I agree. I, I think, Howard, there are, there are tremendous lessons we can draw from what we're going through right now. And I don't mean for a moment to suggest there's a silver lining in this COVID-19 pandemic cloud, particularly that's a, it's a human tragedy and an economic tragedy and throughout the world, not just in this country and far beyond our dispute resolution systems. But I, I recently heard a colleague uh, in, in a presentation discussing the impact of technology kind of sum up in, in a few words, a judge from the Northern District of California, retired now, Vaughn Walker, who is also an arbitrator. And he was speaking in a Duke Law School, the Bolsch Judicial Institute program with the, the dean there, the day, a former dean, David Levy. And, and, and he observed that, that what, what we're experiencing and what having these new virtual communications tools does for us is to focus or force us to focus on what's really essential and important in the process. And we, we kind of learn from it what we can do without and also learn what we must have to make the dispute resolution system work properly. And as I've crept forward in this arena over the years, I think that that kind of nails the the concept and kind of speaks to what you were just uh, just describing. There are lessons for us to be learned, and what is unique now or new now will become de rigueur in the in the future. Uh, people will uh, will not find it at all odd. I think also we have younger counsel. There's a, there's a certain generational element to this, I think, uh, and uh, given. Given my my age, my years now, and when we started using computers, uh, you know, you'd go to a class for judges, and they'd say, "This is a computer," and someone would say, "Could you repeat that?" You know, that it, it was it was very rudimentary, and now I marvel at the skill some of my colleagues exhibit in dealing facilely with uh, uh, electronic communications and the technology, and 
and all of us can learn to use it at some uh, at some point and to yeah. some degree. My, my my colleagues do not believe me, and uh, I've almost I've been warned to perhaps not say it, but I will. I think we can look to a time when an enormous number of disputes, including some very significant ones from beginning to end, will be dealt with on cell phones. Uh, uh, the the cell phone. Uh, has become the center. Uh, what it's spun off is, is just amazing. You know, in, in telemedicine, uh, because of COVID-19, well, a lot of restrictions on telemedicine have been waived. Uh, for example, sure. the, the, the licensure requirements in this time. Now, uh, using telemedicine, a doctor in any state can treat a patient in any other state. The individual licensure requirements do not prevent that. But one of the amazing things is what can be diagnosed at home with a cell phone, a, 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 an, a cell phone picture. And I, I just uh, heard this at, at a seminar on telemedicine, a cell, a cell phone picture of a person who believes they've had a stroke. You're at home and a, a parent or relative indicates something that may be a stroke. Take a picture, send it uh, to a qualified person, to a neurologist or other, and based on the cell phone picture with a fair degree of accuracy, the doctor can tell whether the stroke was a hemorrhagic stroke or an ischemic stroke. Uh, That's amazing. And and uh, the amount, in addition, in medicine, and I use this as an analogy because the, there will be analogies in the legal profession. Uh, general practitioners doing dermatology analysis uh, are correct 50% of the time. Dermatologists in office get the diagnosis right 90% of the time. But what's so interesting is dermatologists online, again, looking at what the cell phone has captured, dermatologists online are right 80% of the time. And so if you had the difference between going to a GP, traveling to the office, spending the hours it takes, and having the GP look at the dermatological issue, or simply making a call on the cell phone and having it viewed by a dermatologist through the picture you're taking, you're going to get a significantly more likely accurate analysis in that way. So what's happened in medicine, and there are going to be analogies in the law, but the medical applications are absolutely astonishing. Uh, what's happened in medicine is the technology developed for totally different purposes. I have no idea that Steve Jobs, when he introduced the iPhone, would ever believe it would aid in the diagnosis of strokes at home. But that's exactly what's happened, and it's going to happen in the legal profession as well, because everyone I know of my grandchildren's age, for example, uh, live on the cell phone and do everything they can with the phone in every way. And I think it inevitably, uh, when you talk about online dispute resolution in some cases uh, and, and the coming use of artificial intelligence, that we are looking at dramatic changes. And what's so interesting to me is that the medical profession, in terms of its willingness to change, is today so far ahead of the legal profession. You know, we've always thought of doctors as often being resistant to change, but they have accepted this change incredibly. An enormous number of practices now uh, developing telemedicine capacities, and, uh, and and we're going to we're going to face that challenge in the law as well, because what I want to talk about is what now happens. I mean, we're going to come out of the COVID nineteen crisis hopefully soon, uh, perhaps months, whatever it is. And there will be in the courts two kinds of things pressing on the courts. 
One will be an enormous backlog of cases, uh, not just civil cases, but the criminal cases. And the, the presiding judge in the Los Angeles Superior Court announced in the last couple of days that 30 judges in civil courts are being trained now to sit in criminal courts because of the backlog in, in criminal cases. Uh, the huge difficulty of getting people to come in as jurors uh, you know, Los Angeles County and, and what you mentioned, the, the, the Balch Institute seminar, which you, you were kind enough, uh, to send me information about that I also watched, uh, which was just uh, amazing. But Sherry Carter, people were astonished. Los Angeles County sends out 1.8 million jury summons a year. 1.8 million. And, and yet, uh, you know, not a majority show up today, but they're going to be great difficulty getting jurors uh, to come. I mean, the juror rooms will have to be changed and, and social distancing and, and jury trials. So that's one set of problems. The other set of problems, though, are the kind of cases that are going to flood the courts now. Uh, and I know you've talked about that in terms of the kind of litigation that you think will now be coming down the pike uh, be, when this is over in terms of what's been caused and what we're dealing with. Talk about some of those. What do you see as happening in terms of challenges to the court system in, in, in cases that will now come? Well, it, it, and, and I appreciate that question, and I think it's an important one in terms of looking down the road, you know, looking over the horizon a bit of a long view. We know that there's this backlog that exists that you alluded to, and that the courts are going to have to cope with to get the dockets back on track as best they can. The criminal cases in federal and state courts are going to take precedence. <clears throat> they have to, and uh, constitutionally, and, and they will. That's going to create pressure and an economic driver, I think, uh, that forces many to consider alternatives to their dispute resolution, but whether they look to alternatives or they wait it out and go through the court system, we're already seeing things. If you pick up a newspaper every day, you'll see examples of cases. I was reading yesterday about a, a, a case, a trademark and copyright infringement case brought by 3M uh, against individuals who had basically uh, uh, abused licenses and, and hoarded massive amounts of N95 masks and other things. And, and they were being sued over that. There was even now a criminal prosecution, fraud prosecution instituted in New York for that. But constantly we're seeing safety and liability protocols for employees returning to work that generate some litigation, business interruption, insurance coverage issues, suits that are you know, predictable over immediately with regard to nursing homes, for example. But but long term, I think it's almost a question, where won't there be impact uh, across the the board? When I was referencing this recently that uh, that you just mentioned, when I t talked about this previously, I, I just did a quick survey of the literature as to what is coming down the pike and things were characterizing suits against banks alleged to have acted anti-competitively, you know, giving preference uh, for the under the CARES Act loans to certain customers or fair debt collection practices and fair credit reporting act suits. 
uh, alleging unwarranted debt collections and negative credit reporting, all manner of employment uh, litigation, wage and hour litigation, uh, failure to pay minimum wage and overtime. Uh, you, you, intellectual property cases, medical and pharmaceutical fields relating to developments, patents, licensing of COVID-19 diagnostic tools or related trademark and copyright uh, suits related to PPE, shareholder suits. I, I, I just don't even know where to draw the line. Even when you go to tort litigation, I mean, the imagination of the, the plaintiff's bar is going to be the, the ceiling on that. And, and uh, I think it's going to be a pretty pretty high ceiling. So I don't think anybody, unless they you know, have a crystal ball and want to learn to eat glass, can really predict exactly what we're going to see. But I think it's a fair assumption to anticipate that uh, our litigation in the courts and in adjuncts to the courts in the form of ADR providers are going to see a significant increase. And part of that's also going to be driven by, as you say, with the medical field, uh, we've seen the innovation in, in not only healthcare, but in education or employment or entertainment, uh, gaming in Nevada. Name a, name a, a profession or a business that, that exists out there where they're not adapting and using this uh, new technology in one form or another. We're going to continue to do it within the uh, dispute resolution, the court system, uh, and the ADR systems. That's you know, our function is to resolve disputes. And but whatever not- we can do. To, to improve that, it's, it's incumbent upon us to do it. But, you know, you use the phrase that I think is so telling here. It's not in many discussions about ceilings on things occurring that you describe the ceiling as being some group's imagination. I mean, when you're, when you're talking about a future in which the ceiling in an activity is only the imagination of someone or a group, you're talking about something that can't be predicted at all. Uh, and so we're about to face in the courts and in the entire dispute resolution system this enormous flood of cases, whether it's a flood or a tsunami, it will be a lot uh, on a court system that is now already burdened. I mean, you had the experience in Nevada, but, you know, the, the California district court closest to you in the eastern district is short of judges uh just in a complete crisis uh and the federal and the state courts are now going to face this incredible number uh of complex disputes uh that that present really important issues with significant factual issues so how do we deal with this i mean right now we've got a system that can really be described in terms of the Industrial Revolution, as a craft system. Each case is unique. Uh, each case deals uh, separately with the judge dealing with it separately. Uh, despite technology, we still have the same procedures of complaints, motions to dismiss, uh, discovery, electronic discovery, uh, complex motions for summary judgment, uh, and then the difficulty of jury trials, uh, the need for settlement discussions. We have a craft-based system that is facing a fourth industrial revolution tsunami of disputes. And so how does our system adapt uh, 
to deal with that? There's there's a, a constant uh, you know challenge that I think historically we have faced. You you describe accurately the situation not only in the central or eastern district of California, but throughout California within our federal courts and certainly in Nevada as well, and frankly in most. And you know we have great difficulty in securing new judgeships, the allocation of new judgeships, not to mention filling the vacancies that we have. And that's a whole separate political issue that uh, none of us has a, a complete understanding or handle on, except when it comes in our own backyard. Uh, use, use something we did within the federal judiciary, which I think is a marvelous success story. And I realize it departs from technology for a minute, but if you just take a look at the federal magistrate judges system that we have, and I speak from the perspective of somebody who was in that for nearly seven years before I went on the district court and chaired the judicial conference committee for the magistrate judges system back in the 90s. When the 1968 Federal Magistrates Act was passed, we had a system of U.S. commissioners that had been around since 1789 uh, and and they didn't really have served many adjudicatory functions. It was more ministerial initial appearances in criminal cases. But slowly, as as necessity required, they were morphed and adopted into more and more a greater decision making rule. Well, that was memorialized in the Act and in subsequent amendments to the Act to the point that when uh, even when I started in 1980. Uh, the, the magistrate judges system had a, a large number of part-time magistrate judges in different parts of the country, but very few full-time magistrate judges. It was something like 100 full-time and 500 part-time. Now, I don't know what the numbers are today, but it's got to be around 600 full-time and maybe 50 or 20 part-time. And the array of duties and responsibilities they have to augment what the district court judges can do, the civil consent procedures under 28 U.S. Code 636C, for example, which give an adjunct court that has the full authority and consent of the parties to adjudicate cases to, to finality, to go up to the Court of Appeals, is something that has helped tremendously in the federal system uh, to cope with burgeoning caseloads. It's not a a solution, And I don't know if there's something like that that will be in the offing, but I think the courts will continue to just adapt and adopt new and be flexible, as flexible as they can. But it's clear it's going to require an, an influx of a lot of resources, which are hard to come by, uh, you know, from Congress when it's allocating budgets to, to the courts uh, to, to accomplish that. And that is another driver that pushes people, uh, pushes litigants who who are behind the, the line or at the end of the line, even with major commercial disputes, for example, but they don't have the opportunity to cut in front of the criminal defendants or, or the many uh, situations that can only be resolved in the courts. Yeah, and of course, you, you know, mentioned the magistrates. It's, the magistrates are so critical, you, you know, it's, it's almost, oh, you, you understand in the army, the, the, the officers may get uh, much of the glory, but it's the sergeants that determine what happens on the ground. Ab a and ab ab absolutely. And, no, it, it, that, I mean, that's a prime 
example, it has nothing to do per se with technology. But I think that, you know, we, we, we're going to have people who, who really have important cases that they need to get resolved. And many of those cases in the federal courts, for example, and in the state courts, are of a constitutional dimension. You know from your experience in ADR, we don't adjudicate or we don't participate in resolving constitutional disputes. There uh, are civil, civil rights disputes of, of certain kinds and so forth. Those are going to be in the courts, and that's going to push, push, push uh, private litigants, I think, who, who at least can afford to access the ADR systems where they have a little bit greater control over timing and, and the expense that's involved and uh, even selection of who the people are that are involved as the arbitrating panel or the mediator, uh, uh, whatever, that uh, it's going to become even more appealing. And it's going to be incumbent upon those involved in those fields to be ready to, to step up and handle that uh, yeah, it's, you know, there are two views on this. One is it's private justice that people can pay for, and that's a criticism we all understand. But the other view is sure. that to the extent those complex cases are taken out of the public system by consent of the parties, it frees resources to deal with the cases in the system. You mentioned the magistrates. There's one very significant difference between getting a budgetary increase to increase the number of magistrates and the judicial appointments is since magistrates do not get Article Three appointments and do not require Senate confirmation, but are chosen by the court, that those are positions when the budgets are there that are much easier to fill in terms of dealing with workload uh, than, than hoping. That's a, that's a very sophisticated point, and I could could talk for a half an hour about how some of that uh, came about with regard to the magistrate judges system back in the 1990s. If you recall, the both the magistrate judges and bankruptcy judges are appointed by the courts. The magistrate judges by the district courts, the bankruptcy judges by the circuit courts of appeals. They are not appointed by or authorized by Congress of the United States. And there was a, a change that was made in the 1990s, I don't recall the exact year, that, that kind of altered the structure for the bankruptcy judges system, which did uh, require authorization, specific authorization from Congress for creation of new bankruptcy judgeships. That was offered to the magistrate judges, but it was called the difference between discretionary funding and mandatory funding within the federal judiciary. And I think wisely, uh, those involved with the magistrate judges system at the time made the decision, no, we, we think we like it just the way it yeah. is, where, where the judiciary has the ability uh, to, to control the expanse. Yes. Because what is needed changes from one district to another throughout the country in terms of the resources. Yeah. And we can meet that need within the judiciary. Yeah, that's true. I, there's one other, I, I, this has been a wonderful discussion. There's one other point that I want to make and ask for a comment on, which is, you know, with all the pressure, let's take out the large constitutional issues, which clearly don't belong in ATR, the criminal ADR, the criminal matters can't go to ADR. The public policy, there may be a huge question of interpreting a statute uh, that really has to go to a court, a government-granted right, like a, what, what patent is valid, 
uh, that may have to go to a court. Uh, but there are also a large number of disputes that are private disputes among parties involving factual issues and arguments over what cases have decided that do not involve those large policy implications. Is there a role then within the ADR process for people to to suggest customized solutions? We've talked about it as a craft system, but certainly customized solutions can be proposed for any kind of number of disputes to, to resolve them uh efficiently. And isn't that where we need to go in terms of dealing with this massive influx of influx of cases, so many of which are these purely private disputes revolving around factual determinations and, and the interpretation of current law? Well, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I know you do uh, a lot of mediations and far more than, than I do. But even in my uh, work that is, while the majority of it is arbitration work, my my mediation cases, that is precisely what what I look for is those, you try to come up with some innovative solution as the mediator naturally to kind of help the parties get to a, a resolution of whatever their dispute may be. But but you really kind of engage and try to in, in involve everybody involved and they know their businesses better than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know what the issues are, the real motivators are, the real interests that are driving their dispute are, and get them to, to be a little innovative, to, to pro- make proposals. And some of the best resolutions I have had have been precisely yeah. of that nature. And yeah. I think, uh, uh, you know, people who they may have strong views about the merits of a particular case and how they would fare in court, but what is it going to cost them to get there and how long is it going to take? Yes, that's the and question. That's the question. That yeah. Those are always the client's questions, how long and how much. And yeah. uh, that's I, I, and we get to that point, that very practical point, after an enormously informative discussion. Uh, we've been talking about court processes, about current issues, about ADR. Uh, you should know that... Uh, some of you are listening to this outside the paywall. The the podcast is outside the paywall. But there's an enormous amount of literature within the Daily Journal on these issues that can be searched, articles that have been written by leading people in the field. They can be searched in the archive. They can be bookmarked. They can be used in research. If you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you have easy access to that. Any article that you read uh, can be bookmarked. Any area can be searched. If you're not a subscriber to the Daily Journal and you're listening to this outside the paywall, if you go to dailyjournal.com, you will see a button, blue button, that says subscribe, and you will have, you'd have the opportunity if you want access to that treasure trove of materials, uh, to expand and see more of what we've been talking about with Judge Pro. Become a subscriber to the Daily Journal and that gives you access to the full archives and all ability to search and bookmark on this issue and many others. But on this issue, which we've been talking about with Judge Philip Pro, Judge Pro, thank you so much. It's really been an honor to have you with us. And thank you on behalf of our listeners as well in the Daily Journal uh, for the kind of wisdom that your experience uh, brings to these issues. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> 